part two with Chris Pierce looks at clearing the backlog of cancel procedures and how technology is changing clinical and educational practice. And then I just want to go back to something you were talking about where um, you said that there's a committee that, that decides what cases need to uh, or can get done. Who's, who's involved in that committee and, and how do they make the decisions around that? Um, so we have an, uh, an operating theatre committee that runs anyway, just sort of works, deals with um, you know, operating theatre related issues, which I used to sit on, but I'm not anymore. Um, so yeah, you just have to, so that each department has a representative. So you just put the case to them uh, to say, you know, I, I think this patient is urgent and needs to be done. I mean, trauma or cancer just gets through anyway. You don't have to do that. But things like a high ankle sprain, I had to sort of justify why that couldn't be postponed until the threat level decreases. You know. um, and uh, moving forward to when you start back, hopefully, as you say, in July, how do, how do you or how does the hospital decide who gets in first? Yeah, we're actually just working that out now. To theatres. Um, so I'm, I'm the clinical director of the orthopedic department as well, so um, it's my job to sort that out. So I haven't quite finalised it yet. But, but, you know, there's two aspects, the aspects of the outpatient clinic and the operating theatre um, as well. So I think we've got about 200 cases that for surgery that have been postponed. Um, and uh, generally speaking, they will get the first priority, you know, unless there's something very urgent that comes in. And the individual consultants can choose which which uh, operations go first out of that lot. Um, and for the um, but we, again, we're going to start with day surgery, and we have this thing called DS23, where the patients stay overnight, they go home in the morning, uh, so they're in the hospital for less than 24 hours. And those beds are kind of ring fenced; they're not part of the 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 beds that are used for for general patients. So we'll start with those cases first as well. And then and then again move on to cases that require an inpatient stay later when things have settled down a bit more. And again, that's the way the way that we were like ramped up the COVID response was was the same. You know, we were we were allowed to do day surgery cases until March or uh, or so. Um, but where we stopped doing any inpatient, non-urgent inpatient cases, you know, in, in the beginning of February, as far as I remember, yeah. And, and then for the operating, I'm sorry, for the outpatients, you know, we've got thousands of patients, obviously, that were that we deemed to not be urgent. So we'll start with the ones that have had, you know, the delay the longest. So the patients that are supposed to come in February will will be the first batch to, to come back. And patients that were sort of on the verge of needing surgery, we'll try and prioritise those. You know, the ones that are one year follow up for a knee replacement or something, they they they're the ones that can still wait a bit longer. You know, if they're a long way down, unless unless they've got any problems. And the other thing we are doing is is, is starting to do tele uh, consultations as well. Sounds like you're ahead of ahead of us in that because we're actually I'm just going to go for the training for it next week. Well, that's a bit, yeah. So the 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 way in which I'm not sure that we're necessarily ahead of the game, but we've certainly been been using it um, in the NHS it's it's slight, slightly less versatile than it is in the in the other um, healthcare sector but how you know it's almost as if healthcare seems to be behind the curve with everybody else gaming technology and Netflix and all these kind of things how do you or what ways do you think that we can really start to harness the technology that's currently available and potentially what may be available within, you know, the next five to 10 years. How do you think that's going to change your practice? Well, I think, um, I think a lot of these teleconferencing things, you know, we, we never really used them before either at work or socially really, did we? I mean, um, you know, I had a, I had a zoom chat with a lot of mates from school, you know, from my school in the UK 
the other day and we're like, wow, why, why weren't we doing this before? You know, because they live all over the world. You know, there's one yeah. in America, one in Switzerland, one few in the UK. And so we did that, which, but it was kind of the COVID situation that prompted that, really. I mean, we used to meet up at Christmas time in the UK, you know, once every couple of years. But um, so, and, and I think the same goes for, uh, for, for medicine. And again, I'm, I'm director of research in my hospital. Um, and so when, <clears throat> you know, the research office people, hardly any of what they do really requires them to be in the building. Um, so, you know, they're all working from home um, and that doesn't seem to have affected anything much. I think quite a lot of the stuff that we do, if we had access to, I mean, we have electronic patient records and things here. Um, yeah, I, I actually don't have remote access to it at home, which is, uh, you know, there was a big PDPA issue with people's data being stolen recently. So, I mean, that circle has to be squared or at some point, but there's, but there's a lot of work that we can do remotely. And actually even conferences, as much as I like, and I don't want conferences to be done online because I like going overseas and... Uh, you know, meeting up at the bar with people like you, but it, you know um, that that Mark Myerson organised conference that I think you were involved in as well. I mean, I didn't see yours because it was the middle of the night for me, I'm afraid. But um, the uh, you know that that worked really well actually. And actually, maybe we should be thinking more about doing you know, even audit or case reviews or something like that across across the continent uh, with this new way of working in that respect. In terms of seeing patients remotely, I think. You know, again, there's a medical legal kind of um, issue to that. And there's a, you know, I think there's a certain percentage of patients that are amenable to that, but um, but not that many in what we do, really. One good example was something that Matt Solon set up in um, in the Royal, uh, Royal Surrey ages ago. You know, we, we used to have a, a radiology meeting every week. And we'd, so you'd see the patient in clinic and say, well, I think you've got this. We'll get a scan. We'll check, you know. Then we'd have the radiology meeting. We'd go through all these cases. And then, you know, we you know, quite a lot of the patients, you'd phone up and say, well, you know, the scan showed what we thought it would show, so carry on with your physio for three months and we'll see you then kind of thing. We didn't have to bring them back for an appointment. That, I mean, that, Matt set that up 10 years ago plus. Um, but, you know, so I think we can do more of that. There's, there's definitely a lot of appointments that don't need to be had. But I think, you know, new cases or, you know, post-op cases, obviously we can't do that. So we, we are less able to do that than some other specialties probably. Um, so just sticking with the conference bit or, the, or starting to get into a bit of medical education, I mean, I, I like you, I think there's there's two aspects of, of, of how this technology affects conferences. I think there's, you know, meeting up in person, there's definitely those fireside chats at the bar. You, you get a perspective that you may not get on a, on a Zoom conference, but certainly the, the actual educational medical information part of it presentation I think does lend itself um, well to doing some of that with virtual technology uh, but I think it would be a real shame if we lost the and it's back to that fun aspect of medicine you know if if all we're doing is work uh, and no play then I think some of the creativity that um, brings about you know change and innovation gets lost. I, I so completely I, agree. I think yeah. I, I, yeah, I think actually as well. I mean, the main reason I go to conferences these days is to see people. And I think you know, you say your fireside chat. I think I probably learned the most important lessons of my life, um, and you know, work-wise um, and everything else-wise, uh, you know, in the fireside chat aspect of things. So yeah, I hope that doesn't transpire to, to online conferences for the rest of the world. Although I, I you know, 
I've probably saved twenty or thirty thousand quid this year by not going to conferences. <laughs> yeah, and I, and again, I think that there's a couple of things that that raises. So I think the you know a lot of these conferences are he- heavily sponsored by industry, um, whose budgets obviously have been uh, fairly dramatically cut in the three months that that you know orthopedic implants haven't been getting put in. I suspect um, there will be some changes with that. I was chatting to some of the guys from Wright and they're they're just sitting on their hands at the moment, just frustrated and irritated, but also starting to, to really think about, one, how do they deliver the education differently? Um, and that then starts to go into the, the whole realm of AI technology and how you potentially could start to use that within the theatre setting. So you then could have you as the senior surgeon assisting uh, with technology in two or three other two or three other um, uh, theatres, which may not necessarily even need to be in the same country. Um, so yeah. And the bit that really kind of freaks my mind out is, and you know Dave, but they're looking at how you operate in Mars, which is, you know, with a however many days delay that information needs to get there. So if we yeah. can do that, it kind of seems crazy that we can't actually work out how to operate within COVID uh, and that the whole of elective orthopedics and elective surgery has, has literally ground to a halt globally. Um, they've, they've, they've done that sort of thing with the, the Da Vinci robot, haven't they? Yeah. Well, they? yeah. So do you think that there's where, where barriers have been there before? And I'm not sure what those barriers were, whether it was red tape or just the very paternalistic side of medicine. Do you think COVID's an opportunity that, that needs to be harnessed to sweep some of that stuff aside? Yeah, in, in some ways, yes. But I think the, you know, I think the personal touch in in medicine is important you know i think doctor patient relationship and also in the you know collegiate way as well so i i, I kind of hope not actually but maybe that just shows my age next time chris explains the impact on surgeons not operating for a prolonged period of time in a career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopedic surgeon working both in the national health service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope, and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies and not the media, to decide what our collective future should be. You can follow Songbirds and Sirens via Facebook, Twitter or on Instagram. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch. Music